online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, yet another livestock disease edging closer to Australia. It's probably an extra thousand kilometres closer, so it's very significant. The disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor, where the real risk will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to northern Australia. And experts offer advice on how to create a better performing apple orchard. All the knowledge is there, but I think sometimes we were just uh, stuck with two conventional methods because that's the way it's been done for years and years. But with the correct knowledge, we can uh, try to give the plant exactly what it needs. Meg Powell, here with you again for the Country Hour today. I've just wrestled the microphone away from Tony Briscoe and taken over for another day. One mistake, though, and he might just cut right back into the broadcast. Bringing the program to you today live from the northwest coast, easily one of the top three best regions in Tasmania, I'd say. And today we'll be having a look at a warning that the new federal environment laws might slow down investment in major projects. Plus an encouragement to eat more this Christmas, as if we needed that, as some farmers flag concern about an oversupply of certain foods. And look, I'm willing to help out there. We'll also check in on the weather and the news headlines. And your thoughts anytime on 0438 922 Tell me where you're listening from or maybe tell me you want Tony Briscoe back, whatever you want. That number was 0438922936. First, let's head over to Indonesia. And lumpy skin disease is edging closer to Australia's north with reports the virus has reached East Java. The viral disease was first detected in Sumatra in March. Dr Ross Ainsworth is a Bali-based vet who has spent the past 40 years working between the Northern Territory and Southeast Asia. He says the movement of the disease closer to Australia's shores is concerning. There is a confirmed case that I've seen some documentation on from East Java, and that's in the last week or so. There was a confirmed case or a number of confirmed cases in central Java in September. And uh, as of a few weeks ago till now, there are also lots more unconfirmed cases, and it's pretty easy disease to recognise. So the unconfirmed cases are in southern Sumatra, West Java, Central Java and East Java. So it's pretty much, it would appear fairly certain that the disease is now spread throughout Java all the way to the east. And the implication is that the next cab off the rank will be infection in Bali. Right, okay. So for those that don't have an overview of what Indonesia looks like, how much closer does this bring lumpy skin disease to the north of Australia, geographically speaking? It's probably an extra thousand kilometres closer, so it's very significant. And it demonstrates that the disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor, where the real risk will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to northern Australia. You mentioned that Bali was the next cab off the rank as lumpy skin moves further east. If it were to get to Bali, what sort of risk does that pose to Australia? Does that mean, you know, mozzies could be coming back on flights as tourists come home? What's your take on that? 
Yeah, it's, look, it's not like uh, foot and mouth where it's so easy to carry on humans and other inanimate objects. So the risk is not that the people will take it with them back to Australia. The risk is that it's then that much closer to Timor where the distance across the ocean to Darwin is the least. So if, and it's a big if, if the insects carrying the virus can be blown across the Timor Sea, then every step towards the east in that direction is a bad thing. But Bali doesn't represent a risk for tourists taking it home, I don't think. A very small risk anyway. But uh, as I said, we simply don't know enough about this disease to predict it. What do we know about how it, it spread so far? Well, that's the issue, really. We know so little about this disease, so much guesswork and so little hard scientific information. We don't know exactly which uh, insects carry it. We don't know how far they go. There is uh, some people are pretty confident that the spread throughout Java is by the movement of, of animals themselves or uh, infected material from animals, and that's quite possible, in fact, probable. The movement restrictions in Indonesia are a bit hit and miss, so it's possible for animals to move and spread the disease. It's not permitted to bring cattle and buffalo into Bali from Java. So that will be a good test of the movement of the disease. If the disease gets here, that will provide some sort of probable uh, proof that the disease is transmitted to Bali through insects. The problem is that this disease has been infecting countries that don't have major cattle industries that export cattle and therefore depend on those cattle industries for their income. So it's it's never been seriously studied. They just use a live vaccine and it more or less sort of keeps it under control. But Australia doesn't have the luxury of using live vaccines for new diseases. So we need to know a lot more about this disease and we need better vaccines. We need uh, lots of research. And uh, unfortunately, we have to start almost from scratch. How is the vaccine rollout going in Indonesia? Very slow. So the big push, of course, is to vaccinate for foot and mouth disease, and that's uh, rightly so. It's a more serious disease for them at the moment. And also they're just strapped for cash. You know, they've had to raid their treasury for the large sums of money necessary to, to buy vaccines. The, the buying the vaccines, probably the easier part, the more difficult part is finding the money to get that vaccine delivered into the cow. You have to get it out into the regions. You have to hire a lot of staff. You have to train them how to do the vaccination. Then you've got to provide them with all the gear. Just to make matters even more complicated, when there's both foot and mouth and lumpy skin in the country, you can't use a multiple dose vaccine syringe like we all do in Australia. You can't do that when there's a disease that's spread by a live virus. So you have to use a single syringe, throw it away, pull out another one, load up and give the next animal a shot. So very, very expensive, slow. To make matters even worse, if you go to a farm in Australia, you might have 100 cows, you might have 1,000 and you're there and you get the job done. In Indonesia, the average herd is two. So you go to the farm, you do your biosecurity, you put your boots on and scrub them and whatever other biosecurity. Then you do two head, then you have to take it all off and clean it all up or get some new stuff and go to the next place. Very, very difficult 
slow and expensive. With all that in mind, how are you feeling about lumpy skin disease and how do you rate its chances of coming over to the north of Australia? In my opinion, it's a 100% chance it will get here. There's plenty of doubt about whether it could potentially be blown across the Timor Sea like lots of other viruses get blown across in the wet season. But if that's the case and it's, it can't come that way, then it simply continues through the island chain of Indonesia towards the east, gets to New Guinea, goes through New Guinea, and then comes down across into Australia through the Torres Strait, which is a very short distance, and there's absolutely no risk that insects couldn't fly across there if the disease is in New Guinea. So I, I think it's just a matter of time. Whether it's one year, ten years, we just don't know. Bali-based vet Dr Ross Ainsworth speaking with Steph Sinclair. Biosecurity Tasmania says the state would not be excluded from being impacted by a detection of LSD on mainland Australia and there would likely be initial restrictions on export markets and livestock or product movements. And uh, a text just in from Rob in Deloraine who says, you're doing great, Meg. Thanks, Rob. I just want to let you know that is very comforting to me. Tony, you're off for another day so far. Over to major projects now. The head of the country's peak mining body is concerned the federal government's overhaul of environmental laws will slow down investment in Australian products projects. Plans for major reform were unveiled last week, which include the creation of a new Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says the new laws will speed up the approvals process for new projects, but Minerals Council of Australia Chief Executive Tanya Constable isn't convinced. We've got a big job ahead in the mining industry to make sure that we are reaching, as an economy, net zero by 2050. That is going to need so many more minerals to be able to to get there. Copper demand alone will need to double by 2035 across the world. In Australia, that sort of demand for minerals is only going to lead to one outcome, and that is more mines in Australia. What these new reforms do, and this new national EPA potentially does, is slow down the approvals that we will need for new mining. And we cannot afford to do that when we have a big task ahead of us. Do you think it will deter investors from looking to Australia over some of our competitors, particularly in the critical minerals space? Well, more than ever, Australia needs to attract investment in minerals development into Australia. It supports jobs, it supports broader national objectives and brings in revenue to support a range of services, not least of all things like hospitals and schools and all of the services that go with that. These new reforms need to ensure that we are going to see the mines rolled out in a very timely fashion and that investment does occur in Australia. It's one more hurdle put in the way of investors looking at jurisdictions around the world. And it looks at Australia and it sees yet more regulation, more powers being given to a a national environment protection authority that it was never intended to have. And it says, why go to Australia? Let's look at Canada. Let's look at the United States. Let's look at other jurisdictions apart from Australia. 
we've got you know billions of dollars worth of projects in the pipeline already. Are they at risk of potentially you no know, not meeting timeline commitments because of this approvals process that comes into play? We need to make sure we've got less complex efficient and timely approval processes. The mining industry expects that anything is in the pipeline is guaranteed to go through very quickly. And we don't want to hold it up with new agencies being formed, with new powers that are uncertain in terms of who has responsibility for doing what and where the accountability lines may or may not be between a CEO in a independent environment protection agency and also the minister. So our expectation is that if the minister is saying we're going to have streamlined approvals and they're going to be faster um, and we're going to get a better outcome for an environment protection and we all want that, we expect her to make sure that she is uh, doing that for the whole industry. You, we've touched on some of the concerns you have there, but what about some of the benefits of this? Do you see any positives from from these reforms or these flagged reforms? Look, there are some good reforms that are part of this process. We will see more streamlining uh, is expected between the Commonwealth and the states. That's expected to speed things up a little bit. We expect to see regional planning that clearly identifies areas where there might be high environmental value, um, areas that might have moderate environment uh, value where you know developments will be allowed to go through much more quickly with the subject to approval processes and agreed rules. And there'll be clear development priority areas. Uh, the water trigger won't be extended past its current area. Nuclear action trigger uh, will be reformed to take into account the current uh, Panzer Act requirements and we won't see any sort of climate trigger introduced. They're all good things for our industry and provides some pathways that I think that the industry can absolutely work with and what we've been advocating for strongly out of the mining industry. So some really good things that apply to the government's response to the independent review of the EPBC Act. But it doesn't get away from the major issue that we have, and that is that mining is very concerned about the EPA powers that might further delay projects. And we'll be making sure that um, that we are working alongside the government to make sure that any of those reforms do not hold up projects and therefore do not hold up what is the ambition of the economy as a whole of the people of Australia, and that's to get to net zero quickly by 2050. Minerals Council of Australia Chief Executive Tanya Constable speaking there with Steph Sinclair, calling the creation of a new Federal Environment Protection Authority just one more hurdle for developments. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
And it's just gone 12.21. And, you know, despite what they say, size absolutely matters when it comes to apples and getting the best return for commercial apple growers, according to one consultant. Nick Finger from Victoria has been talking to Tasmanian growers about producing the perfect apples and how to achieve that. Fiona Breen caught up with him at an orchard at Surges Bay. Now, I was probably putting a few people on the spot today and, and really pushing the agenda of, of getting a good handle on your data and maximising the percentage of fruit in that saleable quality. So class one in the optimum so fruit size range. So you're looking for a particular size uh, and you growers need to grow to that size to really fill the boxes correctly and get the maximum efficiencies? Yeah, so we're looking for the class one marketable yield per hectare. So the stuff that we're seeing in our in our green grocers and our supermarkets, typically in the loose fruit size range, tends to pay the best. Not always the case, it varies by variety, but targeting the highest paying return with the you know, getting all the fruit into that category, I guess. So what were some of the things you were looking at today here in the orchards at Surges Bay? So we spent the day here with, with Ryan Hankin and, and the goal of the day was really looking at his different blocks and the ways that we could improve them and enhance what he's doing and and maybe getting a few more dollars per bin in his pocket. What sorts of things do you think should be considered? So Ryan was was very helpful and gave me a lot of his pack out data and and looking at his size profile range on his fruit he tended to be a little bit small in areas not not small but at a good pack out you know on paper that sounds good but looking at his size if he can just sneak a little bit more into the premium size range he can make What does that mean so the the fruit's too small for the box So in this case his fruit was outside of the carton size range which are the ones we tend to see loose at the supermarket or the greengrocer and ends up in that punnet size and whilst they are still marketable fruit and people are buying them the cost of that packaging is is actually higher than the carton per kilogram so some of the things you talked about were pruning, uh, fertilisers, thinning? Yeah, so we were discussing you know, the chemical thinning results, which is when we, we stress the tree to encourage it to shed excess fruit, because if we don't do that, we get really small fruit that is not really tasty. And so we're trying to get nice, firm fruit with high sugars, and by stressing the tree, we can achieve that early in the season. From there, we're talking about maximising the canopy, so filling in some holes in the tree to make sure there's as much area to capture light as possible. So lots of things to think about. Are farmers in general, you know, putting those figures in and, and adding up everything it costs to produce that fruit before it gets to market? Look, it is variable across, across the country. Some people are doing a really, really good job of it. You know, best practice was a word used today. Others are needing assistance to start, but like anything, the sooner people start tracking one category, the more they can add on as they go. So what do they need to do? So it's really everything. So focusing on on what their costs are, what things actually cost, are there ways to make that more efficient, as well as things like their fruit size, their class one pack out, what is making it into a carton, what that fruit value is back to them working out all their costs and potential returns and trying to balance them as best as possible to maximise their profitability. Well, you've uh, been doing some, some of these orchard walks in various states across Australia. You're seeing a lot of difference? Yes and no. So obviously the climate, you know, the types of trees, obviously we were in pears in Western Australia the other day, uh, apples in South Australia and tomorrow in Southern Victoria. But it's a similar, similar footprint, I guess. People are 
at a point where they're really needing to track these costs and it's and it's time for people to really step up and I guess do their homework on that. What are your thoughts on the Apple industry uh, having a bit of a tough time at the moment with prices and all sorts of things? Yeah, it's it's a challenging time, you know, and I don't think it's just the Apple industry. It's it's agriculture and and the wider business community as well as you know people at home, and it's important that you know everybody is looking at these costs and look. It's tough. There's no denying that, but it's not a time to sit on your hands. It's a time to really get involved and and look at your options moving forward. And if that might be that you move out, so be it. But hopefully everyone can can consolidate and move forward and have a positive future ahead. The floods and things that are happening mainly interstate, has that affected many of the apple growing areas? Yeah, so the big one would be Shepparton, so the Golden Valley in Victoria, one of our major growing regions, growing most of Australia's pears and a lot of Australia's apples. Flooding has been bad, has affected some orchards. It's, it is a challenge. Where it is bad, it is severe. Trees will die. In general, people have had a lot of water in their orchard and that's not limited to Shepparton. That is all over the country. It's made it extremely hard to manage pests and disease. Growers are doing their best, but you know a lot of orchards are quite messy at the moment. A lot of mud. You've got to put heavy machinery through. So it's a challenge, but a lot of guys are moving forward. So you want people to buy local by the sounds of it? Absolutely. Great apples, great pears, great stone fruit. Um, Give it a go, I guess. All right, you don't have to tell me twice. Nick Finger, an apple industry consultant, talking there to Fiona Breen about Tasmanian growers getting the best from their trees. And another expert who visited the Tasmanian apple orchard was South African soil scientist Eureka Cronje. She spoke to Fiona Breen about how the different soil profiles and weather systems have been this year in Tasmania compared to South African conditions. It's very beautiful here and I can see um, this is like a higher rainfall area, the soils is much richer, um, so I landed in Perth and then we went to visit the WA Pear region and then we went to um, close to Adelaide and now we're here and tomorrow we're going to the Victoria region, if I'm correct. Now, you're a soil scientist and you're always looking at nutrition for the plants and the soils. Do you have any advice for Tasmanian uh, orchardists? What sorts of things are you looking at? Yeah, so um, they have a lot of rainfall here. So I've spoken to some of the people. Um, So the last past years, three years, they say it's very high rainfall. So that is not good for our fruit trees. They want... um, um, in springtime they want a drier soil so if it's raining too much then you can struggle in the end with things like fruit size, uh, fruit color because your nutrients is locked into the soil because there's too much water. Do you have experience of sort of unlocking those nutrients in those sort of conditions but it's a lot drier where you're from? Yes it is drier where I'm from but we had similar problems um, about four years back, also too much rain in spring and then in the end you struggle with fruit size um, and then we had after the heavy rain we've got too much drought so that's also a problem. So in general springtime can be very, can give you very worst conditions so to manage that is, is a problem. Um, so in South Africa we have very poor soils and um, the water table can go very high so that you only have 30 centimeters of soil to work with. So then we do um, intensive draining programs to have the roots um, giving them enough oxygen 
And we also do um, mounting if the water table is just uh, too high. How different is that to what uh, happens here in Australia? I think mostly what I've seen is that you've got well-drained soil. So even here in Tasmania, I don't see um, mounting or ridges as we call them. Um, so I think that's a very positive thing. Um, if you have good drainage, then you have um, your nutrient availability um, is then at optimal. So your plants can use them even if it is a little bit cold. Is there any particular sort of advice that you're able to give farmers today or any questions that you're able to answer? I think from what I've heard that is that your problem is basically a bit different than ours in South Africa where we um, uh, struggle normally to get the trees growing. You have the other side because of your rich soils. Your trees tend to be very vegetative. So that is an important factor to control the vigour. And if you can control the vigour, then you can have better um, fruit size and better quality um, because elements, they um, imbalance each other. So the one element that is important for fruit quality is calcium. So if you control your vigour, then you will have uh, more uptake of calcium to your fruit cells. So, So that's a problem where they're growing too fast, perhaps? Yes, that's a problem where they're growing too fast and that's also a problem where you don't have enough growth on the trees. So um, for quality fruit, it's all about the balance of the whole tree and the root system. So you must take all conditions into account. As you sort of travel around Australia and and work uh, in your home country of South Africa, you've probably seen how farmers are struggling with the costs of sort of fertilisers and things like that. Uh, are you seeing people try different things to get around this to, to make sure their soils are, are healthy? Yes, I think the cost is worldwide a problem. Um, so for us in South Africa, the season is very difficult. Uh, we don't have all the products available. It's just not coming into the country. And the cost, as um, some people told me, has gone up 10 times um, for different fertilizers. So it's really a challenging season. But luckily there is enough products available So you must just try and use the right one for your situation and then use every um, compostable uh, element that you can give your soil. So we use all our prunings, goes under the tree. We give the trees extra mulch to try and build a better um, root system and to get the trees um, to use all nutrients available in the soil more efficiently and in that way maybe you can get away with a little bit of less extra fertilizer that you have to give. So using uh, as much of what you have as well as bringing in fertilizers? Yes, that's correct. Do you think that's something that we haven't maybe done enough in the past? It's there, all the knowledge is there, but I think sometimes we were just uh, stuck with two conventional methods because that's the way it's been done for years and years but with the correct knowledge we can uh, try to give the plant just exactly what it needs and then you don't overuse excessive fertilizers and in that way we can help nature also.
Eureka Cronje, a soil scientist from South Africa, chatting to Fiona Breen at a Tasmanian apple orchard about soil health and weather conditions. Coming up, we're going to find out just what foods we're being begged to eat this Christmas, plus a check on the weather. But first, it's news headlines with Monty Boville. Good afternoon, Meg. Making news today, Telstra says it will consider any actions it can take to help customers on a case-by-case basis after accidentally publishing thousands of Australians' details online. The company apologised yesterday after the names, numbers and addresses of some unlisted customers were publicly available since August. The telecommunications giant is also offering free identity theft services to affected customers. Australia Post has issued a plea to dog owners after almost 1,000 workers were attacked over the last five months. The Postal Service says there has been a surge in incidents, with an increase of more than 55% compared to last financial year. New South Wales recorded the highest number of attacks, followed by Queensland and Western Australia. And Moroccan airline Royal Air Maroc will operate 30 special flights to carry soccer fans from Casablanca to Doha. Morocco has has become the first country in Africa to ever qualify for World Cup semi-finals and will play against France on Thursday morning. Meg, there'll be more news at one o'clock. Can't wait to hear it and it's nice to get the news looking directly in your eyes, Monty. See you later. Now it's time to check on the weather with Luke Johnston from the Bureau. Luke, good morning. I mean, afternoon. Uh, Yeah, good afternoon, Meg. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah, going uh, going well, thanks. Enjoying today. Fairly uh, muggy day, I guess, for Tasmania. It's it's a bit like a spring day for Tassie. We've got uh, plenty of thunderstorms at the moment about uh, the the north of the state uh, right now, and we're expecting that to continue for the next few hours. Elsewhere, we're seeing uh, plenty of showers popping up uh, pretty well statewide uh, with sort of gaps here and there. Up to 9am, we we saw broadly sort of 10 to 25 millimetres of rain in in most areas, although there are spots about the the north coast, northwest coast, uh, Launceston that only got sort of 1 to to 5 millimetres. For the rest of today, looking at around 1 to 3 millimetres for the northwest coast and the north coast, 2 to 5 millimetres into the Launceston area and uh, most other places, but it could be as much as 10 to 20 millimetres with some thunderstorms about an area of uh, near the northeast. If you could picture a spot in Tasmania between Sheffield, Oatlands and St Mary's, like Mm -hmm. a triangle, a triangle of thunderstorms today. Gosh, so the uh, the Bureau obviously ignored my request for some um, good summer weather today. Thank you, Luke. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I saw that request and I put it in the too hard basket. Um, we, we might have some warmer weather towards the end of the month, but it uh, doesn't look like it for at least the next week. Love uh, that. Speaking of the, the next week, tomorrow looks to be a very similar day to today, although just a touch wetter about the eastern half of the state. So 5 to 15 millimetres in most areas, uh, 25 to 35 millimetres, about much of the west central uh, middle part of the east coast and uh, the Midlands district as well. So it's going to be an interesting, unsettled uh, springtime day. Notice I'm not using the word summer. Mm. On Wednesday onwards, we get nice bursts of cool air coming up from the south, and that's going to be persistent for the remainder of the week and into, into the weekend as well. So temperatures are going to be around 3 to 6 degrees below the December average. So quite a, a cool Cool end to spring, we'll say. <laughs> I see what you're doing there, trying to 
trick us into thinking it's spring. Yeah. yeah. Well, I sort of believe you. Any uh, any warnings coming up, Luke? Uh, today we've just got coastal wind warnings. So a gale warning for uh, northern waters from Stanley to St Helens Point and lower eastern waters from Wineglass Bay to southeast Cape for southwesterly winds. That same area of gale warning continues into tomorrow. Elsewhere today we've got a strong wind warning for remaining western waters from southeast Cape to Stanley as well as the Channel, Storm Bay and the Central Plateau Lakes. Uh, everywhere tomorrow has a strong wind warning that does not have a gale for all the coastal waters and also the Channel. Uh, and swell, the coastal waters and swell? Yeah, so today at the moment it's pretty straightforward, a west to southwesterly over the state, 15 to 25 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots later this afternoon and reaching up to 35 knots about parts of the north and lower east this afternoon and evening. Tomorrow winds will be west to southwesterly, 20 to 30 knots to start, uh, reaching up to 20, uh, up to 35 knots in the north and the lower east in the early hours of the morning. Winds in the south decrease to 10 to 20 knots during the afternoon and then shift southerly, 20 to 30 knots in the evening. The swell today, west to southwesterly, about the west and south, two to three metres. Uh, that continues tomorrow, then eventually tends more southwesterly, three to four metres in the evening. Through Bass Strait, today westerly below one metre, building to one and a half to two and a half metres this evening, and it will persist as that tomorrow. Uh, the east coast has got a northeasterly to around a metre today. That continues tomorrow, and as well as a southwesterly coming up the coast to around one to one and a half metres. Well, you did what you could with the weather today, Luke, and I appreciate yeah. that. No worries. Well, it does look like from the middle of the month we start to get some warmer air coming over the state. I can't do a Christmas Day forecast yet, but it does look like it'll certainly be warmer than what this week will be. Okay. And now that I've just said that, we're guaranteed <laughs> it's going to be cold. <laughs> oh, Luke, and we know exactly who to blame. Luke Johnston from the Bureau of Meteorology. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, See you mate. later. And a new, let's jump over to King Island now. From the weather, a new 1.5 megawatt solar farm is planned to further reduce King Island's reliance on diesel for electricity. Hydro Tasmania hopes to have the facility complete by the end of May and it will be built on the site of one of its wind farms. Hydro specialist engineer Simon van der Aar says the island is regularly fully renewable. So that's on existing hydro land at, um, at Huxley Hill, which is where our wind farm is. And this is uh, um, an expansion of our existing sort of high penetration renewable system on King Island that, that can actually run the island on 100% renewables if there's enough wind and enough sun to do it, and does that quite regularly. Um, so this is an expansion of that uh, as part of Hydro's drive to, to reduce diesel consumption and emissions on, uh, on King Island. Because of the, the previous work that we've done there with our, our system over there at the moment, um, it's a, a relatively natural fit to expand with a bit more solar. Yeah, it'll, it's, it's just going to further reduce the um, the consumption and also sort of diversify our, um, our, our renewable assets over there. We've got 2.4 megawatts of wind at the moment and this will take it up to about 1.7 megawatts of solar in total. How much is it costing, the expansion? Uh, the, the full project is $4.5 million. Okay, and how much diesel will this mean King Island doesn't have to use? Um, it's anticipated this will offset 300,000 litres of diesel per year, um, which is about 800 tonnes of CO2. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's what our sort of modelling shows. It's it's a bit hard to, to do exactly because it depends on on some conditions. But over the course of the year, that's what we expect. What are you hoping to have it finished? Um, construction is planned or slated to be finished um, in probably May. That's, that's the plan at the stage. Uh, it should start in, in uh, late January, early February, finished April, May. It's on existing wind farm land, and there's not a lot of trees and forests and so forth vegetation up there. Um, it is, 
it's in between um, two of our other bigger wind turbines up there. So, yeah, and that's all part of the, the uh, DA process. What's the footprint of the expansion? How many metres is like? Uh, it's about five hectares. Wow. Yeah, okay. no, it's, it's fairly sizable, which the context is about two and a half MCGs. So when the, when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, will this mean in those periods you won't need to use any diesel? Correct. Yeah. So our, our station can actually run 100% uh, renewables. We can turn our diesels off. Um, and to date we've run, since Kyra went here in 2013, we've run about 18,000 hours with no diesels. And our longest period's about six days without turning an engine on. Yeah, but that's on days when it's been quite windy. Will this have any impact on the everyday resident on King Island in terms of their energy usage? And no, it shouldn't have any impact at all. Um, it's, it, it just goes into the grid and, and it's, it's, um, it's part of our mix to, to reduce those. Hydro specialist engineer Simon Vanderar on the new solar farm it plans to build on King Island. And speaking of energy, the organisation representing oil and gas producers in Australia is warning the federal government that its proposed cap on gas prices will make energy more expensive, not less. The government is putting legislation to the parliament this week to cap the price of gas at $12 a gigajoule and is working on a mandatory code of conduct for the industry that will see the ACCC monitoring gas prices in the future. Australian food manufacturers, meatworks and dairy processors all rely on gas to run their plants. The CEO of Australian Petroleum and Exploration Association, or AWPEA, Samantha McCulloch, told Patricia Carvellas that government's legislation will have a chilling effect on investment in gas production and result in less gas supply in the long term. We want to see relief for Australian households. We want to see relief for vulnerable manufacturers. But the reforms that we saw announced on Friday evening will ultimately make the situation worse. Um, you, they you effectively say, dismantle the Australian gas market. You say you want relief. Signal. What kind of relief would you support then? Because you haven't really been telling us how you'd bring prices down. You've been, you've been well, profiting at high levels throughout this whole crisis. There's, there's agreement that the key to bringing prices down will be more supply. What's actually driving uh, the higher prices at the moment is tightness in the market in terms of supply, as well as domestically, we're seeing this volatility in terms of the demand for gas, particularly from the power sector. What we need to do to put sustained and downward pressure on prices is bringing on more supply. But the reforms that were announced on Friday evening will do the opposite of that. They are far reaching and represent a dismantling of the gas market that will have a chilling effect on the investment needed to bring on that new supply. So Ultimately, it's going to make the situation worse for those Australian households and Australian manufacturers. So what's your threat that, that you're not going to put investments into the sector? What sort of investments are at risk? No, it's, it's certainly not a threat. What we're looking at is Australia has an open market-based economy and that is fundamentally being unravelled with the reforms that are being proposed. This is not just a temporary short-term measure around a, a price cap. This is ongoing regulation and control by the government of the gas market going forward. Let's be clear, it's, it's regulated a one-year one imposition. There is also a regulated price now introduced into a mandatory code of conduct that is indefinite. So we're not just talking about a temporary price cap. We're talking about ongoing regulation of prices in the gas market. And this is of, of 
considerable concern to the industry and to other commentators who have seen the reports over the weekend. What this does is not recognise the risk profile of investments in the gas industry, having a regulated market return. The Minister says opponents of the plan are seeing wartime prices. Is that what your members are doing? Are you actually benefiting from wartime prices? Look, let's just, when we look at the ACCC's analysis of the gas market, and let me distinguish, there is the wholesale market and the retail market. The gas producers sell into the wholesale market. And what we've seen in recent times, in recent weeks, is gas supply agreements. These are long-term agreements that are struck between manufacturers, for example, or gas users and gas producers. We're seeing these deals being struck at competitive terms, long-term deals. So just last week, Santos and Brickworks announced an 11-year supply deal um, for gas that both parties were comfortable with. And the average price of those agreements uh, being struck is around $12, a bit over $12. So this is not the sort of reporting that we're seeing where it's like $50, $60. Um, and the increase that we've seen in the wholesale market over the last 12 months is only around 11%. Now, that's in contrast to the retail market where we've seen increases of 95%. And yet the government's announcements on Friday target the wholesale market exclusively. But the gas price cap of $12 a gigajoule would only apply to gas supplied by LNG producers to the domestic market beyond contracts. It is actually limited there. So it's applying, it's applying to the, the spot markets and it's applying to any new agreements that are struck uh, during that 12-month period. But overlaying that, of course, is also this additional measure of ongoing regulated prices determined by the ACCC. Okay, let's be clear uh, here. For As all agreements that are struck. For LNG suppliers, the cap will apply to less than 5% of your production. Isn't that right? 7% of LNG exports are sold on the spot market off the East Coast. 7%. Most of it is sold under long-term contracts that were struck years ago when these facilities were being developed. These are billion-dollar investments. The industry has invested around $400 billion in Australia in the last uh, decade. And now what we're seeing is a government that's come in and is changing the rules of the game. Samantha McCulloch, the CEO of the Australian Petroleum and Exploration Association, speaking there to Patricia Carvelis on ABC Radio National. The government is also putting a cap on coal prices for domestic energy production at $125 a tonne and will provide compensation to companies that have a higher cost of production. The government will probably need the support of the Greens and independents to get the measures through Parliament. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. Yeah, yeah. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Bowling! Wicket's tumbling. Live. Another hundred. And ad free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. You're with Meg Powell and the Country Hour on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's 12.48 and coming back to Tasmania, people and Tasmanians in particular are deficient in iodine, fun fact. To get it, we add iodized salt to bread, but raising the salt content of food, of course, raises another health problem. 
despite how good it tastes, a University of Tasmania agriculture student is researching whether biofortification of wheat iodine is a viable, healthier and economical alternative. Madeline Rogen caught up with Esther Magor to hear how she's going. Iodine deficiency is like, it affects so many people right across the globe. It's a problem in developed and developing countries and I think it was nearly 2 billion people across the world are affected by iodine deficiency. So it's a really important nutrient, um, but it's something that's not very present in foods we eat. So a lot of it is through uh, like our bread because that's fortified with iodized salt. And so using biofortification is adding nutrients to a crop while it's growing so that we can harvest that and use that crop for bread and then not have to add the nutrient during that processing stage. It's kind of already there. So with the current process, as you said, we're adding it to the bread as we make it. Is that something that's problematic? Um, Well, there are lots of different reasons and a lot of it probably comes down to just being like an extra step of processing foods and also just because we're adding the iodized salt and yeah, there's all these issues with the um, effect of salt on our cardiovascular health and all those things. So just trying to reduce the amount of salt and also like only breads that are like commercially baked uh, contain this iodine so if you're I don't know making your own sourdough or something it's not going to have that iodine in it so but if you're using flour that's come from a wheat crop that's had iodine added to it it will be there. In your research you talk about how there's a lot of deficiencies in the soil and part of your research was also about looking at why that might be what what did you find out? Pretty much so I analysed the iodine content in wheat grain from across the country or like the southern part of the country in the wheat belt and tried to look at how like environmental factors such as the soil type would affect how much iodine's in the grain and yeah the iodine content was low in all the samples and it was hard to find any influence of the soil type but I think it just all comes down to how complex soil systems are and like the interaction between the soil and rainfall or distance to the coast that have been identified as factors that will affect iodine content in soil, but it's kind of hard to really see an obvious trend in because it's just so complicated. Like that's kind of the conclusion I came to. Like, what did you find anything particular about Tasmania in regard to iodine levels or deficiencies? Well, unfortunately, I didn't have any samples that came from Tasmania. It would have been really cool to have a look at that, but um, yeah, I was lucky to get samples. Uh, from the GRDC's National Variety Trials. So, yeah, I can't really say anything about Tasmania, but hopefully, like, what we've learnt from those other places will also kind of apply here. But, yeah, because iodine deficiency is especially problematic in Tassie. So we're especially deficient here. Um, how how does, that, how does it affect people? It's known to have lots of effects, but one of the, like, major effects of iodine deficiency, or at least, in the past, has been goiter, um, which is where, like, the thyroid enlarges and it swells your neck up and stuff. And, like, that's still a problem, but not as big as it has been. But there's been, like, research out of or Utazman here at Menzies in Hobart where low iodine deficiencies during, like, pregnancy can have long-term effects on, like, the unborn child and then into their, like, adulthood and it affects their, like, mental development. So it's a pretty big issue. 
Yeah, and I think I read that it was a much larger problem in maybe the 50s and 60s. But yeah, it's it's important to know that I guess it's still an issue now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think it's yeah affecting not just the mental stuff but other growth and development and I think a bit of reproductive type health and those things. So it kind of covers a lot of areas. Yeah, and how are you hoping your research will be used? Uh, What are your next steps? Yeah, so my research was just a small part of a larger project that my my supervisors are involved in looking at improving the nutritional quality of cereals like wheat. So um, they've also looked at other nutrients like zinc um, and selenium. So, yeah, I guess I'm just hoping that this will, you know, contribute towards that. I did a glasshouse trial um, looking at sort of how we can optimise the application of iodine if we're going to you know implement biofortification so yeah hopefully that will help and biofortification might become like an efficient way to increase human consumption of iodine and then oh and yeah also other nutrients and ultimately I guess improve our human health but just in general like support the wheat industry by improving the, the nutritional quality of the crops. Esther Magor talking to Madeline Rojan about her research into iodine. And congratulations to Esther who has finished her uni studies and landed a job as an agronomist. Great work, finishing uni and getting a job straight out. Not as easy as it looks. But on to our last story. With December 25th fast approaching, many people are already planning what's on the menu for Christmas lunch or dinner. But with some industries tipped to face an oversupply of produce this summer, there's plenty of farmers worrying about what to do with the excess. Send it over here, I say. Producers are now calling on consumers to look for foods in high supply this Christmas, as Ashley Bagshaw reports. A year plagued by floods, fires and droughts has left many producers reeling from losses to their crops. But those who've seen a good season are experiencing a very different type of struggle with the glutton industries like pineapples and red wine, leaving producers worried. North Queensland pineapple grower John Zelenka says an unusually cold winter in Queensland, the state where the majority of the country's pineapples are produced, has spelled trouble for the industry. This year we've had an enormous amount of natural flowering, to the point of in our smooth leaf it's probably at about 50%, and in our hybrids it's probably 80 or 90%. And do you have any idea what's brought on this flowering? I spoke to a couple of people and they seem to think that it was that we had five very cold days in winter and all the planets sort of aligned and this this actually happened, caused it. It's the worst case of natural flowering in the history of the pineapple industry in Queensland. And I'm guessing you've spoken to growers across other regions as well then? Yeah, and everyone seems to be in the same situation. So the problem will be is the bulk of Queensland's pineapple crop is all going to come on over two or three months and then there will be less during the middle of the year. And so where does your fruit primarily go then? Uh, we supply all local markets around Mac- in the Mackay region, um, the IGAs and, and a lot of private fruit vendors and then we also send quite a bit to Brisbane and Melbourne. What is the plan going forward as a grower? I'm not quite sure. uh, We'll just have to see what we can do to get 
I'll probably push to try and get even rid of even more in this region because I can I'd be pretty assured that the price in the big markets in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney will be not that high if there's a massive oversupply. They just need to eat a heap of pineapple over summer. And how many pineapples would each person have to eat? Four or five a day. North Queensland pineapple farmer John Zelenka. Meanwhile, South Australia's red wine sector has been experiencing an ongoing glut and producers are anticipating another tough year in 2023. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, says the industry is continuing to struggle to find markets to send product to. Yes, we're seeing quite severe oversupply because we've had the factor with China a couple of years ago, all of a sudden decided to put horrendous tariffs on our wines of 218%. So all this red wine that that needed to be aged that was developed in the vineyards really hasn't found another place to go. So at the time when the uh, tariffs were put on, we actually had an undersupply situation. So I think this vintage coming up, vintage 2023 in the new year, we'll really see some big pressures. And unfortunately, a lot of the wineries just don't have capacity with their tanks to take the excess supply into the wineries. So I think we'll probably have to leave a lot of fruit um, out on the vineyard uh, for this season. Australian wine, still the domestic market is our biggest market and it's just, yeah, supporting um, our local producers would be really um, beneficial for everyone. Mitchell Taylor, Managing Director of Taylor's Wines. The avocado industry is also on the verge of another big crop. By 2026, the country's supply is anticipated to be at around 170,000 tonnes more than double the 80,000 tonnes produced in 2021. Sarah Tucker-Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, says while growers may not be seeing a repeat of the glut experienced in 2021, this year's crop is once again looking strong. We had a record crop last year and every growing region in Australia had a record crop, so it was a massive amount of avocados and we expected this year to be a lot lighter than it is. It, the avocados have produced well again <laughs> and, uh, and we're busy, but uh, thankfully the market is better because there's not quite in flux that there was last year with all the other growing regions. It's looking good at the moment. Avocados are looking great for Christmas, so that's exciting. Sarah Tucker-Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, ending that story. And you can read more about that story online. You can find it on the ABC Rural website and that's about all we've got today on the country hour but of course you can head online get onto abc rural there's heaps of great stuff on there uh head on to abc hobart abc northern tasmania and keep listening out tomorrow for more juicy rural stories that we'll have coming up including the transformation of a well-known industrial hub into an agricultural center so definitely keep your ears peeled for that one